Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. Today, I have the real pleasure to talk with Benedetta Berti, who is the author of Armed Political Organizations from Conflict to Integration. Benedetta, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure, a pleasure to have uh, read your book. Uh, before we get into it, and it's a, it's a meaty, uh, 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 complex book, Maybe we can learn just a little bit more about you and your affiliations and your background and, and where you are now. Sure. Um, well, right now I am a fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies, which is a semi-affiliated think tank, part of Tel Aviv University, that deals with uh, national security, foreign policy, and Middle Eastern affairs in general. At the INSS, I am one of their fellows. I work mostly on uh, issues that are related to human security in the broader sense of the word. Um, on top of that, I'm also a lecturer at Tel Aviv University and at Ben Gurion University, also in Israel, where I basically uh, deal with a number of issues from, from democratization theory to social movement theory to social protest, uh, strategic nonviolence struggle, uh, and I try to apply all these concepts to the Middle East. So that's a little bit about my background. Yeah, and, and your book does such a good job of integrating you know, the very complex histories, not just of the region, which many people have told, but of these organizations, which which um, uh, must have taken just a, a lot of, of work. I don't know how transparent and open the information is about these organizations, and, and to be clear, the organizations you focus on are Hezbollah, Hamas, and the Irish Republican Army. Yeah. I wonder, before we, we, we talk specifically about the book, if you can talk a little bit about just how you, how you did the book, how you did the research. Are there open archives that you use? Is this done based on interviews? Mm-hmm. How did you do this? Because you've gotten close to organizations that I have to assume aren't always open to, to public inspection. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very good point. Very good point to, of, you know, to start the conversation. I mean, this originally was my uh, PhD. I did my PhD at the Fletcher School at Tufts in uh, international relations, and this started as a PhD program, uh, then turned into a book. So I've been working on this for at this point uh, a couple, two, three years plus the research. So it's uh, it took a long time to put it together. Uh, I did quite a bit of field research, uh, both for, uh, well, especially for the cases of Hezbollah and Hamas. I spent quite a bit of time in Lebanon and in Palestine, and then I also did field research for the IRA, but less. For that, I relied more on archival documents because there is a very dense historiography of the group. For Hamas and Hezbollah, I relied on uh, uh, documentary research, but also a lot on field research, interviewing with people that have know the group, the work with the group, that are their political foes and political allies. So I, I spoke with a wide range of uh, stakeholders in both Lebanon and Palestine. I have to say, when it comes to studying groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, I think a lot depends on which angle, uh, 
which part of the organization you're trying to study. Meaning, when, when, when trying to study their political strategy, like I do, there is a little bit more openness from the, from the group to discuss these issues. Uh, something, if someone is trying to, 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 to study their military apparatus and their more secretive organizational structure, that's when I think bigger, bigger obstacles are encountered. For my part, I did find quite a bit of openness, especially when I, when I was doing my field research in Lebanon, that was when Hezbollah still used to have a PR office and still used to set up interviews with researchers. They have changed that uh, since, but I was lucky enough to, to, to have that, uh, that access to the organization, which I think yeah. added some level of uh, depth to the description of the group. Yeah, and it shows up in, in your writing. I, I mean, in some ways, this is, you know, you could take out of this a real master course on, on how to do this, this type of, of qualitative and elite interviews, and, and it really does show up in the writing. But the, the, the book also has a, has a deep um, theoretical contribution to me. And, and before we get to the approach that, that you take, yeah. um, you describe the way that major international players typically approach parties. So, for example, you, you described that the U.S. might label a group a terrorist group, mm-hmm. while Australia, for the same group, would label it a political organization. And, and you write in Chapter 2, and I quote, a fundamental problem with both of these approaches is their reliance on a binary classification system. So what is the problem with using this kind of binary classification, which uh, Australia, United States, and, and other nations will typically use when they approach the kinds of organizations that you focused on. Right. Uh, so there are many problems. What are, I, I will start with what triggered, like, triggered my interest and started this research, which is the more policy, policy-oriented dilemma here. And a lot of it is when you try to label a group and you give it one, uh, one adjective, like terrorist organization, you put it in a very specific box. Now, that box may be, may adequately describe some of the activities that that group undertakes, but in most circumstances, it will fall short of really giving you a, like, a rich description of what the group stands for. So uh, when, I, when, I, when I look at an organization like Hamas or like Hezbollah, um, I can pretty confidently say that two-thirds of their activities are political or social activism. Uh, I'm not saying that there is no connection between political activism, social activism, and military strategy. The three of them are very closely interrelated. However, if I only focus on the military side, I'm losing a lot of complexity. And what I, the risk is that I feel that I will fail to understand what drives the organization, how the organization operates, how it adapts. In other words, I'm just over, I'm just seriously oversimplifying a complex political, social, and military organization. And if, if my objective as a decision maker is to find an, uh, an effective strategy to counter or integrate whatever the case may be, that political organization, then my first job would be to understand it. So if I only look at the terrorist activities, I will most likely fail to understand how the group operates. And most likely the strategies I will come up with to deal with this group will be will also fall short because they don't meet the complexity of the group and the complexity of the challenges that these groups pose. So yeah. it, it was a very much, uh, let's say, practitioner-driven uh, um, query that started my, my research. But there's also a very strong, I think, uh, more scholar debate, scholarly debate about uh, 
the power of labeling and how that influences our our choices in terms of devising political strategies. Yeah, and, and let's talk about this in specifics because your book is, is just chock full of, of specifics. An organization such as Hezbollah in Lebanon is is um, much more complicated than this, this binary system would permit. So how is Hezbollah organized? You, you described it as highly institutionalized. How so? In, in, in what ways is, it, um, is the organization uh, institutionalized and in, in organized in a highly institutionalized way? Right. So part of what I, I did in the book was um, to move a little bit beyond this binary classification of, uh, of, arm, arm, over, of this organization as either political or armed, and I kind of looked at them as hybrid uh, organizations. And I tried to apply some organizational theory on them and to really look at the internal power relations within this organization and also to look at how, how practically these organizations are, are, are function and how they are structured. And I think that's that's something that I think has a value in itself, but I did it for the purpose of, of showing this constant tension between political and military activism. Now, the case of Hezbollah, I chose because it's, I think it's a very good example of how to structure an organization in a highly hierarchical, highly, um, highly uh, tightly hierarchical way. Hezbollah is a group that has Basically, it's uh, organized like a pyramid. At the top of the pyramid, you have the Shura Council, which is sort of the legislative body. Together with the legislative body, you have the Secretary General. They, they run the organization together, and they basically oversee all other organizational activities, be them uh, political, be them military, be them social. So, for sure, one of the, one of the main characteristics of Ebola is that he has very strong internal command and control, as quite their quite a low tolerance for internal dissent, and he has an extraordinarily uh, resilient and continue, continuity of leadership. The, the main secretary general has been in power since 1992, and as such, he has been really able to evolve within the organization and to, 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 to take control of all the different uh, activities that Hezbollah carries out in its, in its daily, um, uh, daily activities. and. And as such, being really able to establish uh, remarkable internal control. Uh, yeah. My point is that that internal, the, the fact that all, organ, all organizational activities, including political activism and military activities, are perceived as complementary, so they are perceived as really reinforcing the the, the group's uh, branding and the group's popularity and its legitimacy and its position and power, most importantly, because. Because those activities are perceived as complementary, then there is very little tension within the organization. And then I compare this with other groups like Hamas, where on the contrary, you do have internal friction along this political-military line. Um, the idea is that internal dynamics really matter, and when you sort of treat all these groups as equals, you're oversimplifying and really missing out a lot of potential to deal with these groups in a more effective way. Right. and, and um, the description of Hezbollah and, and some of its social welfare programming is, is just really interesting, and, and it seems that some of the argument that you're making is through its early years, um, the, the social dimension of, of the organization is um, uh, a real prominent part of what it does. But much of your book is about these transitions um, and, and these shifts in, in purpose into politics. And so by the early 1990s, you argue that things begin to change for Hezbollah, and your, your central thesis 
seems like it's, it's in part that changes in the political, env- uh, 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 the political environment are associated with the adoption of a political function or a political wing. Right. So what changed in, in, in Lebanon and the Middle East more generally um, that led Hezbollah to begin to move towards a political strategy and then later an electoral strategy? Right. Uh, so this is, uh, this is part of the work I do. I look at these organizations, and because I assume they're rational players, and I, I assume that the decision to, to create a political wing and to compete in an election is the result of cost-benefit evaluation, I look at what factors were present when this decision was made. And what I find, and it's, I, it's of course just the beginning of what could be a larger study, but what I find is that there are recurring factors meaning that all these groups start to, to invest in institutional politics when similar things happen. Now, in the case of Hezbollah, I see that one important influence is the fact that uh, the group decides to shift from, uh, uh, from focusing mostly or exclusively on uh, its resistance military activity to political activism with the end of the Lebanon civil war. There is a bloody civil war that reaches in Lebanon from 1975 to 1989. Then Lebanon moves beyond the war through uh, the Taif Accord to, uh, to uh, post, uh, post-civil war rearrangement of the political arena that creates a better political system in terms of better electoral rules for Hezbollah and the Shia community. So the group perceives there is an opening in the political space, an opening for the group for the group to participate, and most importantly, not just to participate, but to have some sort of influence in the political there are a few other factors that are that contribute to heighten this perception that the political system is ripe for participation. One is that uh, after the civil war, Syria becomes extremely involved in Lebanese political life. It's basically designed to be the guarantor of the peace. As the guarantor of peace, Syria is heavily involved in Lebanese political life and is heavily involved in basically making sure that all types of political decisions are taken in a manner that are to this let's say, uh, goes along with Syria's interests. So among Syria's interests is to boost Hezbollah's profile. It, it's actually more complicated than that because on the one hand, Syria wants to control Hezbollah. On the other hand, they, they appreciate their role in Lebanese society, so they decide to, to, to allow them and to foster their political participation and to allow them to preserve at the same time a military wing. So basically, the entry cost for Hezbollah is, is lower because they, they are not required to enter the political arena and disarm like all other militias in Lebanon. They are allowed to enter the political arena while remaining an armed group. So there is basically um, an opening in the political system that allows them to participate. And at the same time, there is also a a series of organizational factors that pushes them towards participation. One of them is that at the same time, this, uh, at the same time, late 1980s, early 1990s, they face a drain, a decline in their financial resources. There's been a change of foreign policy in Iran, and they get for for at least five years one third less of their of their financial support, and they also get a more lukewarm political support from Iran. So they are basically, that also pushes them to diversify their funding pool and diversify their portfolio, so to speak, and to invest in institutional politics. There are other factors, but I'm I'm summarizing some of the most important changes that occur in the late 1980s, perhaps a lot. And 
one of the things you just noted earlier was was this tendency to treat these organizations um, as, as quite similar, mm-hmm. as having similar institutional uh, uh, organizations and, and be organized in the same way. And, and then for that reason, from a distance, one would um, say that uh, assume that Hezbollah and Hamas were similar and their their paths forward uh, from formation are, are similar. Is that the case in in the research you do? Or are uh, is Hamas closer to Hezbollah, or is um, as as you uh, uh, write about the Irish Republican Army, uh, are there similarities um, such that the uh, IRA is closer to Hezbollah, or is Hamas closer to, to Hezbollah in, in its history and, and its transition from uh, uh, military uh, functions to political functions? Right. Um, I think a lot of the a lot of the problems that I found in the literature on these groups is that it tends to, in my in my opinion, of course, it tends to overplay the importance of ideology. Meaning that part of the work I do is to to kind of put that in perspective. So yes, these groups are these groups are highly ideological. They have very strong belief systems that guide their actions, but at the same time, they're also fairly rational, fairly strategic thinkers, and their political and military development is not just guided by this. Blind, blind irrationality or ideology, but it's actually guided by cost-benefit analysis, and they are heavily influenced by their political constituency, by level of popular support for the group, and by their external environment. So I think if you take it into this into consideration, then the political development of Hamas and Hezbollah appear to be quite different. Uh, because they're they're really in different social political situation and they also are exposed to different kind of pressures internally and regionally. Uh, more importantly, or just as importantly, if I look at their organizational structure and I give a lot of importance to their to organizational structure and internal dynamics, then I can see that there is a big difference. On the one hand, you have a Hezbollah being heavily uh, heavily institutionalized, strong command and control, one leadership. Uh, holding very strong control of the organization. And on the other hand, I have an organization like Hamas that on paper is organized like Hezbollah, but in practice, as developed over the years, geographically dispersed and at times overlapping leadership. And these at times overlapping leaderships are often in internal conflict within the group over politics versus military activities, for example. And they seem to respond to shifts in public opinion as well. One of the examples I make in the book is that if we look at Hamas' level of uh, uh, military activities, armed activities, uh, declines in the years immediately immediately after the agreement, which are the years where the level of Palestinian public support for struggle is at the lowest ever. And at the end of the 90s, when uh, a perception that uh, the people is going nowhere and that the summit of the Oslo Accords has not been delivered, then support for violence goes up and together with it also comes out activity. They're at least somewhat conscious of the shift in public opinion, which also backs my, my main point that they're not just ideological, they're very much looking at their political environment to make a decision. Um, so I I don't know if Hamas is exactly like the IRA. I actually would say that case of the, the of the relation between IRA and Sinn Féin, there was more of the um, it was easier to 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 separate the two wings 
because that was a conscious strategic decision of the organization to portray themselves as two separate parts. Uh, what is for Hamas, it is more complicated. But what I think is interesting is when I look at the political development of Hamas, I see recurrent periods when there is uh, internal conflict over the role of armed struggle versus political activism and when there are internal parts of the leadership that are actually want to push the organization towards uh, political activism and downplaying the armed struggle and vice versa. So it's a very much, so I would say that for Hamas it's very much a work in progress. They're very much still deciding which way to go. And for the time being they're happy to do both, uh, to do both, but they have internal conflicts about it, which Hezbollah does. Yeah. Right. I, you know, there's just so much good stuff in this book. Uh, before we finish up, I wonder um, if you can put some of these, um, some of what you found in the book in the context of uh, the Arab Spring or the Arab Awakening. Yeah. Um, what what can we um, use from the book to make better sense of, for instance, what's going on in, in Syria and Egypt right now? Um, what do, what do we, what can we learn from and better understand about these two situations that without your book we might, might not understand fully? Okay, so I, I would start by saying that one of the contributions that I try to make here is to depict and to analyze, uh, armed organizations that are normally, they are normally treated in a very, I would say, simplistic, one-dimensional way to show the real complexity. Uh, which I think is something that we could take, we could use very well when we when we look about the evolving situation in, in the Arab world right now, because I, I do see that a lot of the analysis is, is still done through a very binary term, uh, modernity versus pre-existing uh, sectarianism, um, political Islam versus liberal. I mean, reality is more like that. So I think that could be one insight. Another insight is that. Um, Often, when when reading the parts literature on political participation of armed groups, or in in general in the context of integrating um, armed or extremist factions into a political system, there is sort of a, um, an, an assumption that political integration will per se lead to uh, to moderation, meaning to to relinquish on the armed struggle and to accept the rules of the political game. One of the things that I noticed through this study is that that doesn't necessarily happen uh, unless there is a purpose strategy to have a dialogue and integration and a, um, a constant, uh, I would say, a constant attention on uh, on looking at how these groups operate and and to tailor the strategies. That, that strategy directly to the group. What I mean is that a piecemeal policy, a one-size-fits-all policy in dealing with a rise in uh, political parties, being then Islamist or not, in the Middle East may backfire because it's oversimplistic, which is another insight from the book. The book is not necessarily uh, relating to to the political and social transformation of the Arab awakening because that, that, that is more a bottom-up civil society social movement kind of mobilization. But some of the insights that I get, that I, 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 I hope to get by looking at how to have a dialogue and integrate armed groups can very much applicable to societies uh, that are today more polarized than ever and more than ever in need to find a strategy to to wrap up their 
to patch up their differences and, and pursue reconciliation. So that mm. part could be applicable. No, as I mentioned, I, I really enjoyed uh, um, uh, what you've written, um, what the, learning the history of these organizations and, and how you put this together is just, just very interesting. What's, what's next for you? Uh, do you have a, another book project that, that you're in the midst of that we can look forward to? Well, I, yes. <laughs> I, slowly, slowly, but uh, it's mm-hmm. happening because this is a subject that I'm extremely interested in. So even after I, I completed this first manuscript, I felt that there was a little bit of there was something still to be said about how to integrate armed groups into the political system. Uh, I'm now going even more in depth into the North and Northern Ireland peace process, and I'm actually looking at that as a, as a possible template for the conflict that I, I work most closely with, which is the Israel-Palestine conflict, and I'm doing that through, through a particular lens, which is I'm looking at how the sequencing of the demands makes a difference in terms of uh, leading to a successful or unsuccessful agreement. So it's not just what you ask, but when you ask it. And that's really what I'm doing at the moment. Yeah, well, I look forward to this, and I'm sure it will turn out as well as, as your current book, which is <laughs> Ar- uh, Armed Political Organizations, published by John Hopkins Press and available widely. I hope that everyone uh, has the chance to, to read this both those that are uh, that, that study comparative politics, uh, study the Middle East, but I think those that are interested in social movements more generally uh, could learn a lot uh, uh, about the nature of institutionalization of organizations from this. Uh, Benedetta, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation.